we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. Well, take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. I wish I had time to talk about every verse in this chapter. I don't. I don't even want to hear me that long. But it's a landmark chapter in the Word of God, in my estimation, and one that is surprising to us. At least it's surprising to me. One of my favorite verses is verse 9. I love the martial sound, the militant sound of uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. And in my mind's eye, I see us marching out under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his peculiar people. We are that uh, nation, that generation of holy people made holy by him, not by ourselves. And uh, I, I love the almost militant sound of that, like we ought to just go and possess the world right now uh, because of the banner of the Lord Jesus. But then I read on in this chapter, and I'm surprised at the methods that Jesus uses for his peculiar people and for how they possess this world in which we live. It, it starts with self-denial. He says in verse 11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Well, there's a popular topic for today. Announce a series of messages on denying ourselves. Amen? And you will not fill an auditorium necessarily. After he talks about denying ourselves, he comes in verse 13 to a topic that is just beloved in our world. Submit yourselves. Man, write a seminar on learning how to be submissive and rent out a big coliseum and you'll be able to hear your own voice echo off the walls because our world is not interested in submission. We love conquering, we love ruling, we love leading, we love mastering. We're just not so good at submissive serving. And then the Lord really exposes to us not only submission, but who we're to be submissive to. Submit yourselves, verse 13, to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as to, un to them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. I, I think our world has lost the meaning of that verse. 
But God has not changed his mind about our need to sub, of, of submission to civil authority. We struggle with it because we disagree with it, but God hasn't changed his mind on it. He goes on and down in verse 18, he says, Now, not only to civil authority, but I want you servants to be subject to your masters with all fear. Hey, when Peter writes this epistle, please understand that more than half of the world are slaves. They're indentured or literally owned, bound in slavery by uh, the Roman population and by other cultures in the world. And, and there's no a note or asterisk that says, be in subjection to your masters with all fear if he's a good one. There's no room for complaint about your master. Now listen, we don't live in a culture of, of slavery, praise God. But I do think that there is a way that we can read into that that just as a slave in the day that Peter wrote this epistle was to be subject to his master, I believe that the believers in this room are to be the best employees in their employer's employ. And I think with integrity and honesty and with a spirit of hard work, we are to be submitted to those who, who are our bosses. So many of the men that I pastored for so many years in the D.C. area struggled with that. They had been perhaps in the military and when you're a colonel in the military, the world bows down to you. And then when you're a new employee in the federal government in the defense department, nobody bows down to you. And they struggled with that. Hey, not only that, but then the Lord in verse, in chapter 3, in verse 1, says, wait a minute, not just to civil authority and not just uh, to your employee or employer, but I want you to likewise, ye wives, be in subjection. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. <laughs> but he's not done with that. In verse 7, he includes men with another likewise. And then in verse 8, finally... Be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love his brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, and do good. Well, I'm telling you, he just covers the whole gamut. In our relationships as believers, do you know what the mark is to be seen in our lives? It is to be submissive people. Submissive to the will of God and submissive to authority that God has placed in our lives. And listen, we can be the greatest soul winners. We can be the greatest uh, uh, um, master in a craft. We can be all kinds of things. But if we have not understood the need of being submissive in our walk in life, we've missed a great piece of what God wants us to see. Now, I want you to notice this back in chapter 2. Notice in verse 19. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, 
suffering wrongfully. If I had a pen knife and I was a king, I'd take my pen and cut that one out of there. Will you let that get a hold of you? Do you know what the Lord just said to us? That it is thankworthy. God appreciates it in the lives of his children when they have done right, but they are suffering grief and they are suffering wrongfully. They didn't do wrong, but they are suffering for the right they did. Look at verse 20. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted by your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable unto God. That's hard for me to get my head wrapped around. That God wants me to live willingly suffering wrongfully. That if I am mistreated, God wants my response to be one of acceptance. That if I am unappreciated, God wants my response to be acceptance. He goes on, For even hereunto were ye called. Goodness gracious, I was called to preach. I was called to lead. I was called to be boss. So I thought, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. That is so difficult to receive. And what is being said here is this, that as the Lord Jesus lived his life towards civil government, we should live our lives. As the Lord Jesus lived his life to those who were in authority over his life, for example, his mother and his father, and even being respectful of those who were in the priesthood, we are to live our lives. And though Jesus was never a married man, had he been a married man, Jesus would have lived his life submissively, not I don't want to make this misunderstood. A wife is to submit to her husband, but Jesus would have led his life in submission, in honoring his wife. And I don't want to sound irreverent in that. And Jesus would have lived his life respectfully and submissively in the local church. My goodness, he put up with people like Peter and took it. And loved him. Do you realize how different our homes would be if we would suffer patiently like Jesus did? Do you have any concept of how our churches would be absolutely revolutionized if we would suffer patiently even when unappreciated, even when wrongfully treated? Do you have any idea how it would change the appearance of our church to a lost world if we suffered patiently? Amen. Do you have any idea how we would change our workplace 
If we walked in with an attitude of acceptance and suffering patiently, I don't mean being uh, foolishly treated, and I certainly don't mean for a wife to be abused. I don't mean those things. But I want to tell you, we have lost the sense of being willing to be suffering and patient in being treated wrongfully for Jesus' sake. And Jesus could use that. Now, here's all I want to do for a few moments. Jesus was given to us as an example. And I want to walk through whatever I have time to do, six or seven, principles that if we would employ in our workplace, in our relationship, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our churches, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our homes, with our children, it would literally revolutionize all the institutions that we have to do with. Notice them with me. Here's number one. Jesus had a willingness to suffer patiently when he had done nothing wrong. Look at verse 20 again. For what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, that is acceptable to God. Our Savior was perfect. He never sinned. He never wronged any man. There was no one who could convince or rightly accuse him of sin. At his trial, when no rightful charges could be found, lying witnesses were suborned, hired to trump up charges against him. And yet he did not respond in anger one time. I can be so defensive. You ever, you ever around a defensive person? And the moment something is said, they're, they're heated or they're defending. Maybe you weren't even attacking what they did, but they're immediately defensive. But the Lord Jesus, even when he is being lied about, is not defensive about himself. He never responded in anger. He never defended himself. He left it to the Father. We have become the my rights generation. We are the Laodicean folks, you know. And we may not want to see ourselves as we see our culture. And we may want to look down on our culture and be condemning of our culture. But be very careful because some of that stuff has rubbed off even on us preachers. I have the right to be fulfilled. I have the right to be happy. I have the right to be loved. I have the right to be appreciated. I have the right to be first at the red light. <laughs> I have the right to be heard. And we don't have any of those rights. We have become so narcissistic and so full of ourselves that we believe we are owed those things. And can I remind you that God does not exist for our good. We exist for God's glory. 
And though God is always good, there are times when God allows difficulty, God allows suffering, and if our response is anger and threatening and defensiveness, we will never work the will of God. There comes a point where we have to say God knows and God will work and God will defend and God will help and God will take care of my rights. We've come to the place where you and I need to realize that sometimes we just need to patiently, years if necessary, be accepting of people who don't like us without hating them and without hating ministry. We need to be willing to suffer, setting aside our rights and our needs and asking God to do what only God can do. Is it difficult? Yes. Nigh impossible for us. And only as we walk in the Spirit and plead with God, help me today be like Jesus. And help me today when they say mean things. Help me today when they don't acknowledge me. Help me today when they don't appreciate me. Help me to be like Jesus and see a greater good. I'm just saying that Jesus was willing when he did nothing wrong, when he did only good to suffer patiently and I'll say this and repeat it in a little bit, because he knew there was something beyond that hill of Golgotha. Here's number two. There has to be a willingness to live right when all around you do not. Look at verse 22. (laughs) Who did no sin? Those are some of the most amazing words in the Bible to me. Who did no sin? He lived 33 and a half years on the face of this earth and he lived facing every temptation that you and I face. He faced every enemy that you and I face and yet it can be said of him, he did it without sin while all around him sinned constantly. All those that he grew close to sinned against him. Hey, how easy it would have been for Christ at some point in frustration just to say, I have had enough. Maybe he would have done it when those lawyers constantly tried to ensnare him. Maybe he would have done it when he was struck by those men before the high priest. Maybe he would have said, this is enough when they're gambling over his cloak. I'm just telling you, every step Jesus took, he did the right thing, he did the right thing, he did the right thing, and every person around him violated him and violated the law. And he never succumbed to joining with them. He never justified in his heart, nobody else is doing right. He never came to the place where he said, well, I guess if everybody else is gonna live like that, I better get my piece of the pie too. He just did right. 
Number three, there has to be a willingness to lead a life of no deceit and no hypocrisy. Go back to verse 22. Neither was guile found in his mouth. That word guile is an interesting word. Don't you love your Strong's Concordance? <laughs> Literally, one of the meanings is a decoy. Now, I am not a great hunter. I was not born on a farm. I did not milk cows, and I did not go get chicken's eggs. <laughs> However, I eat both species. <clears throat> I was born and raised on asphalt, but I had an assistant pastor that taught me how to hunt and is one of the greatest outdoor doorsmen I've ever known in my life. And uh, that's got nothing to do with the, the message, but I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> but in teaching me to hunt, one of the things that he would do, if we would go turkey hunting, he would take fake turkeys and he would put them out in the field. And uh, I suppose turkeys respond to fake turkeys because they did come in and we did shoot them. He would take a fake deer and put a fake deer out there. And, and I've seen a buck come in and knock the deer over and just stand there and look at it amazed. I had the same sense of amazement. And they have duck decoys and so on. And, and, and what I'm saying is, is that it was something that looked like the real thing that wasn't the real thing. And not on one day in any way was Jesus ever anything but the real thing. There was no guile in his mouth, no deceit, no hypocrisy. Oh, man, how our homes would be helped if dads and husbands lived in their home. No deceit, no hypocrisy, no guile. Oh, how our churches would be changed if the people who come and say amen and carry the right version of the Bible and sing the right song and lift their hands at the right time, oh, if they were just as real in their homes, what a revolutionary thing that would be. What if we were the same thing at work? What if there was no guile in our lives? And, and Jesus, when we see the example, we watch him walk through life when everything was false around him and everything uh, was hypocritical around him. He was always the same thing, the right thing. Here's number four. There has to be a willingness to be reviled. Look at verse 23 who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Jesus was mocked. He was berated. He was accused. Ah, you have saved others. Save yourself. Come down off that cross. <laughs> he does what he does by the power of Beelzebub. I want to tell you, that may not hit us, but that was just absolutely disgusting for the Savior's ears to hear. And yet he does not revile again. 
You know what that word revile means? It means, and I'm, I, again, I want to give a little disclaimer. I don't want any woman in this room to ever be in an unsafe place in your home. If you are being abused in your home, get out. I didn't say get divorced. I said get out. But I want to tell you, you look that word up and Mr. Strong says it means verbal abuse. You ever been verbally abused, Pastor? You know what I finally discerned? Every person in my church could do a better job at pastoring than I could. <laughs> they knew more. Somehow they knew more. You know what else I learned? Not one, one of them wanted to sit in my seat. <laughs> Not one of them wanted to make those calls. Not one of them wanted the, the, the responsibility of that. And sometimes, here's, here's what I used to tell my wife. I'd say, honey, you remember, uh, you remember that uh, guy on the radio and he had the rest of the story? I said, when we leave Heritage, we're going to have the rest of the story day. And I'm going to get up there and I'm going to say, I've held my tongue for all these years and I'm going to let you know now what I think because I'm out of here, brother. <laughs> and man, I'd have started at A and I'd have ended in Z, but I'd have gone back and started again and gone on through it. What a testimony for Christ that would have been. What an uplifting day that would have been. And they called him names. They mocked him. Not one word. How do we live like that? How do you do that? And you beg God for the power of the Holy Spirit. You know what? Controlling our tongues probably would be the single thing that could change more in our lives than any other thing. Talking to my wife and not saying it. Hopefully getting to the place where I don't think it. Talking to that guy at church, talking to that staff member who just did the most incredibly stupid thing that could be done. Say, hey, brother, I love you. Let me show you something. <laughs> Not saying it back to that church member. Hearing our boss say what he says, seeing what they do, and not being verbally insulting and abusive. You say, preacher, I don't know. I think people need to be told off. Hey, by God, not you. By God, not you. Not only a willingness to be reviled, but look at number five. A willingness to give our hurt to God and not threaten to hurt others. Look at verse 23 again. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him 
that judgeth righteously. At Easter time, I used to sing. I don't sing anymore, but I used to sing. And one of the songs that I used to love to sing was a song called 10,000 Angels. You ever heard it? And one of the lines in that song said, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Being hurt, he was not going to hurt back. No one could have been more hurt than our Savior. No one could have suffered more physically. Sometimes we concentrate that and we forget the emotional suffering that must have been in our Savior's heart. He came unto his own and his own received him not. Every disciple that he had loved with his pure love forsook him and fled. Judas betrayed him. We could go on and on. And I'm simply saying that he, he, even though hurt by those who were closest to him, he never retaliated. He never threatened them. He left that to his father. And, and oh, by the way, he forgave them. Those words that he speaks as they nail him to the cross, Father, forgive them. I'd have said, Father, lightning bolt them. I'd have, I'd have argued, don't you know who I am? Don't you know the depth of your sin? Jesus knew they didn't know that. Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. We need to give our anger to God we're the angriest generation I have ever seen in my lifetime. We're just angry all the time. We're angry on the road. We're angry in schools. We're angry in our homes. We're angry at church. Now, you couldn't possibly be mad at Brother Hooks, but maybe some of the staff you could be mad at. We're angry people. I think it's because we've elevated self and rights and what I deserve. Number six, a willingness to bear the guilt and the consequences of those that he loved. Look at verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. You see Christ on that cross at Calvary suffering for sin? None of them were his. All of them were ours. And he took them upon himself and paid for our sins on that cross. My word, Jesus, how could you love us like that? Now, you and I cannot die on a cross. We can't provide absolution for sins. But we can be committed to God's will and one another so that we are willing to suffer the consequences of the actions of others. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Hey, my wife and I crossed the 50-year mark this year. Uh, I have been blessed to be her husband for 50 years. And I am not trying to be humorous in what I'm about to say. 
I have had lots of moron moments. Have you? Yeah. Tell the truth. (laughs) And you know, there's never been a time where she has looked at me and said, (laughs) well, she says, let's work this out together. She doesn't say, I I told you. She doesn't say, "How how could you have made that decision? How could you have made that choice? She always says, we can work on this together. Oh, we can, we can handle this. Can you imagine how our world would be different if we actually were accepting and gracious towards other, each other and were willing to accept the mistakes that others make and instead of standing in judgment of them, just join the team with them and help them? When Jesus went to the cross, when Jesus saved me, February 1975, I love saying it. When Jesus saved me, I don't know about you, but when I was a little boy, we, we, there weren't shopping malls. You went downtown to go shopping. And every once in a while, we'd go downtown Cincinnati. And, and if your name was Edwards, you have to understand that the good stuff was on the first and second floor and there was what was called the bargain basement downstairs. And if you were in Edwards, you didn't even look at the escalator up. You just knew you were going to the bargain basement. That's where we shopped. That's what we could afford. And I want you to know this, and I'm not saying it with any false humility. When Jesus saved me, he did not get me on the top shelf. He drug my carcass out of the bargain basement drug me out of that pit, that miry clay. And and I want to tell you, he didn't have to do it. But he was willing to take an old boy who, who didn't know anything about salvation, didn't know anything about the Bible, and say, son, I I know you've messed your life up. I I know you're not where you need to be. I know you don't understand things, but come on, walk with me. Where is that spirit? We stand back and we judge a world. Hey, we know the world is a wicked place. You know what they need? Us! To tell them about Jesus. Here's last. A willingness to have hope that those that are astray will return to the Lord. Look at verse 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Did you know that Jesus did not die in vain or without hope? His death had purpose because it was in his death that men could be made right with God. And again, I think of the time that Jesus saved me. You know what? I'm not in anybody's who's who's book. I'm not in the most likely to succeed. But I want to tell you, there is a book that I am so happy I'm in. It's called the book of life. And I'm not sure I wasn't there when Jesus wrote my name in that book. And I'm not even sure it was Jesus that wrote it in. It was made possible by his blood. 
But I want to tell you, there were a passel of people who did not ever think I would make that book. There were a whole lot of folks who knew that Mike Edwards, you know, he was kind of born uh, to the lower class. And, and uh, they, you know, he just, he, um, I haven't always been bald, but I've never been pretty. And nobody ever thought, man, he's going he's gonna to do it. He's going to do it. But Jesus, 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 that I'll take him. I'll take him. And boy, I'm telling you, there's some people in this world that are so hurting. And they need to understand that Jesus can turn their path. He can change their life. He can change their home. He can drag them out of that basement and put them on a solid rock. He can change the direction of their life. He can infuse it with hope. And and you and I have got to have that same outlook that people can be different. People can be changed. Look at us. We were not born in these seats. I wasn't born behind a pulpit. Jesus changed my life. When he went to that cross, he understood that there was hope for the human race. And his death was not in vain. And he was willing to suffer so that a boy named Mike Edwards could have his life changed. Here's all I'm saying. In every one of the relations of our lives, in every institution we find ourselves in, Jesus says, hey, don't walk in there like a master. Don't walk in there like a boss. Walk in there like a servant. Walk in there willing to not be number one. Walk in there willing to be a little patient when somebody yells at you and you've done nothing wrong. Walk in there and live righteously even if nobody else will. Walk in there and live your life real and be on the surface what you are in your heart and be in your heart what you appear to be on your surface. Go in there and don't revile. Hold your tongue. Go in there and don't retaliate when somebody hurts you. Go in there and bear the guilt and the consequences of those that are around you. Be a friend. Be a gracious man, an accepting woman, and be the one that they turn to when the crisis comes. Go in there and realize that all of those people that you're looking at and, and their lives are so messed up, there's hope. Hope for them. Live like Jesus in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches. Treat each other like Jesus treats us. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used His Word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you will find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, 
as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you and thank you once again for listening.